Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, and podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com and subscribe. You can listen to all our past shows and do a binge listen to the archives. We are really pleased today to introduce a guest who really needs no introduction. U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has represented Rhode Island since 2007. He's a leader on oceans, environmental protection, criminal justice reform, addressing the opioid crisis, and election reform, among many other critical issues facing America. He's an old friend of mine, which is weird because neither of us seems old enough to have old friends. I have great memories of the senator's campaigning with me with an excessive abundance of kindness and humor. He is a a true hero of mine in today's sometimes toxic political landscape. And it is a pleasure to welcome you, Senator Whitehouse, to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you. And I also have happy memories of campaigning through New Hampshire with you. It, it was lots of fun and it didn't turn out all that well for me, yeah, but pretty good but pizza. And when you have a Rhode Islander saying pretty good pizza, that's yeah, right. Good pizza. Well, you know, that's actually been a theme of our show this week. We've we've asked a number of guests about pizza. We had former Joe Crowley, uh, former Congressman Joe Crowley, a colleague of mine on the other day, and uh, we had a debate about the best pizza. So I'm a, I will visit Rhode Island and we will eat really good pizza. But turning to sort of an issue of of the moment, uh, as we are speaking right now, the Senate is starting debate over the For the People Act. It's a bill that appears by all accounts to be doomed. So is it doomed? Why is it doomed? And if it's so doomed, why are Democrats pushing ahead with it? Well, you'd never want to say that anything is doomed that has the popular support that this bill has. What it faces is an implacable obstruction by Mitch McConnell and his Republicans at the behest of the uh, big dark money donors who don't want any part of transparency in our politics and want to be able to spend their dark money scheming to get you know, fewer voters to the polls and create new voter suppression laws. So in the long run, we are actually in the favored position. Um, but as you know, if you're a chess player, there are times when you know how the game's going to end. And if you're the majority leader of the Senate, you don't want to start your chess game until you know how it's going to end. But there's some chess games you've got to get into before you know how they're going to end, just because it's the right fight to have. And you've got to trust that your persistence and the immense power of public pressure um, will get you uh, to where you need to go. So let's say that, as expected, the bill today is, in effect, filibustered by the Republican minority. expect it will be. So your colleague, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, circulated a memo several days ago proposing, all right, sort of a fallback, a compromise set of reforms that included some things that Republicans want, like a process for cleaning up voter rolls and requiring voter ID, and some things that Democrats want, like two weeks of early voting and nonpartisan redistricting. Senator Mitch McConnell 
your the minority leader, also your colleague, declared it basically dead on arrival. Would yeah, he you wants pre- none of that. Yeah, right. Not 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 too interested. So, would you potentially support a compromise on election reform along the lines of what Senator Manchin suggested? And maybe more important, do you think that there's any serious good faith interest on the Republican side at all for any kind of a compromise? Well, that's a bunch of questions to unpack. Um, let me start by saying that we expect to have Senator Manchin's support on the vote today, which is on a motion to proceed to the bill. He gives up nothing by moving to proceed to the bill as it's presently filed, because he's going to want to make, if we could move to proceed, he's going to want to make his amendments to it and have his votes, which is the way we, uh, in theory, sort things out in the Senate. So um, I think that you know, we have to get 50 votes. And in order to get 50 votes, we have to compromise. And I think that the compromise that Senator Manchin has put forward is so reasonable that even Stacey Abrams, the, uh, you know, great warrior of protecting against voter suppression has said, hey, you know, that's not what we started with, but that's not bad. Don't, don't knock it down. Um, So I think we're in a fairly good position. I think the problem is, again, that Mitch wants no part of this. The Republican national strategy is to suppress the Democratic vote and to bury everybody in anonymous political money. And this bill takes a shot at both of those core Republican political strategies. It would uh, interfere with their voter suppression effort, and it would require disclosure of all the dark money donors out there. So um, I think it's a hell of a long shot to expect that Mitch will ever voluntarily sign on to anything. But this is where we get back to, you know, Nancy Mayer's article in the New Yorker, where Mitch McConnell's people are being briefed with uh, the Koch political operations, K-O-C-H brothers, political operations people, and they're hearing this report. (laughs) Everybody really likes this bill. Conservatives like it as much as liberals. And as much as we've tried to paint it in an ugly way, everybody sees through the paint. And at the end of the day, we can't knock down this bill very much. This is really tough for us. So if that's the status of the bill, then Mitch McConnell may not want to agree to anything, but you put enough pressure and time on it. You know, and in the past, the Senate has spent 60 days on bills on the floor to work through filibusters. Um, You put enough time behind this thing and have a long national conversation about this stuff. And I don't think you're going to, you'll get some Republicans with a bit of a cold sweat about wait a minute, Mitch, why are you asking me to keep voting to protect dark money when every single one of my constituents hates that? So uh, I'm gonna, I, now I'm going to do something that I know uh, as a good lawyer, which you are, you, you uh, rarely w- want to delve into, which is a hypothetical question. And I, I, I practiced law for a long time, and I would always say, I would dissemble and say that that's a hypothetical question. So here goes the hypothetical. What happens next if the For the People Act fails and there's no... Uh, Senator Manchin's style compromise. What uh, is left in the Democrats' toolbox to protect voting access and election fairness? Well, there is certainly plenty of um, bully pulpit and field organizing. Um, You know, Stacey Abrams fought voter suppression in Georgia for a reason. There was a lot of voter suppression in Georgia. 
right. and yet we just elected the two first Democrat senators from Georgia in a very long time because people were angry about the voter suppression and were willing to stand in line, stand in such long lines that they had to, you know, have people bring them water, which is why the, the you can't bring people water laws being proposed. So when you've got people motivated enough that they're willing to do that, and it's not being done just on the sly, on the lowdown, um, I think the counter pressure against these efforts to cheat in elections by keeping people away from the polls can be more powerful than the cheating. Um, from a point of view of duration, it's hard to have people continue in a constant state of outrage, but looking one election at a time, if we can drum up the outrage that is due against what the Republicans are doing, it could be more powerful in 2022 than their slippery little voter suppression schemes. And what about as a, it's not, it, it's hard to say anything associated with the name of John Lewis is a fallback, but since the For the People Act is sort of the primary approach the Democrats have taken to protecting the right to vote, access to voting in this country, what about as a secondary option, really focusing on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and renewing it um, since it was allowed to lapse eight years ago, do you see prospects for any progress on that front? Yes, and I think if we had the chance to get to the bill um, and we had a chance to start voting on amendments and assembling a manager's package and doing the things one does when one is allowed to legislate, um, that could easily be a part of what we move to. Um, in the past, it's had some fairly lukewarm Republican support, which under the pressure of Mitch McConnell has, I think, largely dissipated. Um, but it, it's a good piece of legislation. And you know, sometimes you're legislating to pass a law and sometimes you're legislating to make a point so that you can get the majorities out for you that will allow you to pass the law later. You know, the great civil rights bills didn't pass the first time they were filed. It took long wars to get them going and a lot of persistence. So this is the opening bell of a long fight, not the closing bell or death knell of this reform. Hmm. Um, what do you see getting done in the next six months? Infrastructure, climate, police reform, health care? Yeah, I think, the, I think um, while we... We'll have to reconvene on S1 hmm. and, you know, figure out a, the next steps in, in the strategy. But in the meantime, we've got a big bipartisan infrastructure bill. We've got a big reconciliation measure planned. We've got unanimity in the caucus on doing both. Um, and those are things that will really make a difference in people's daily lives. And I think while it's really important to set democracy properly up on its feet and make sure it's being run honestly and fairly and billionaires aren't buying our elections and people aren't being kept away from the polls, um, it also really matters that we're answering the needs of the American people. And so, you know, things like um, improved family leave and uh, improved uh, infrastructure and improved broadband and improved 
you know, healthcare supports. You can put a package together that when it all comes out, we'll have a great number of Americans, the vast majority of Americans looking around and saying, you know, I've got something I didn't have before, and this has made my life easier and better. And we're all for that. And then at some point, I think it probably ends up separate from this, but we need to do a big tax reform because the tax code is rotten to the core when the biggest corporations and the wealthiest Americans don't pay taxes. <laughs> Everybody else does. Something is very wrong with that program. I, good luck to Republicans defending that. Jeff doing? Bezos just he plain disagrees with you. He 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 just disagrees. He's he's very happy with the way things are. And I know and life is good for him. You know, he, he goes through uh, warehouse workers like a hot knife through butter, casting people aside because he his 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 business doesn't depend on people. It depends on computers, fire, hiring and firing people. And he's smiling all the way to his bald headed bank. I mean, and Elon Musk, the 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 great the great Elon Musk, the brilliant. He's also happy. I don't know what you Democrats are complaining about. It's the job creators we need to protect. Yeah, right. You know, the other day I saw a story about somebody who made um, a couple of hundred million dollars by winning the lottery. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're a regular American and you win the lottery and you win, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, a huge chunk of that is going to go to Uncle Sam and to the state in taxes because you're an ordinary mortal who happened to win a big lottery. But if that's your annual income, then you're not an ordinary mortal any longer and you get to fiddle with the tax code and have people who can plan ahead and you can weasel your way around the corners of the tax code to where you're paying not a single dime. So it's interesting to put those two people side by side, the one-time $500 million, say, uh, lottery winner and the annual $500 million earner and note that the earner doesn't pay taxes anything like what the lottery winner does. Let me, let me just follow up with one more question. Well, I can't promise it's the last one about taxes, but it, it's, a, it's a fascinating issue to me because there was a time when the highest marginal tax rate for really big earners, I mean, really big earners, was very, very, very high. And yeah. at the same time, when there was this huge tax rate for big high income earners, uh, we had economic expansion and all kinds of good things happening for ordinary Americans. One might argue that the high tax rate on the millionaires and billionaires provided the opportunity for the government to actually do the kinds of things that it wants to do to, uh, to help people and give them a hand up. I'm curious about your perspective on what it takes to bring the American people fully into that kind of conversation to help them understand the way uh, the tax code works or doesn't work. Do you think they get it now? Or do you think there's work that needs to be done? I think, you know, it's important for President Biden to use his bully pulpit to keep reminding people about this. Um, but I think the stories that we've seen about the billionaire individual taxpayers not paying income tax and the multi-billion dollar international corporations not paying corporate income tax because they perform these finagles like living off borrowing that you can then 
pay no taxes on because it's borrowing or pretending that all your intellectual property is in Ireland and pretending that that is causing all of your profits so that they can be booked overseas. Um, you know, those, are, those stunts aren't all that hard to explain to people. And I think they pretty well piss people off. And there's a really, really abiding sense in the country right now that the country is not being run by people who are listening to regular Americans. It's being run for the benefit of special interests and big wheeler dealers. And that's a very, very strong, very strong uh, sentiment. And it exists very strongly on both sides of the aisle. So tapping into that, I think, provides a lot of momentum to get these tax changes done. And then, of course, the things you can do with the revenue are good for people's lives as well, so that the parks get mowed more regularly and the roads get paved more regularly and you get broadband and water and somebody will help you get your lead pipes out of the you know, plumbing in your mm -hmm. house. And those things are, those are good things that mean a lot to people and can change lives. And in theory, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. You know, speaking of the inability of the system to get some things done that really feel like they should be layups, right? Like we should all agree on getting lead pipes out of people's houses and not poisoning children. That seems like a sort of a no brainer. How worried are you right now, Senator? I mean, it seems to me like it's one thing for members of Congress, the U.S. Senate, to disagree on how much to spend on infrastructure or whether to change qualified immunity for police officers as part of, part of policing reform. Yeah. It seems like another to have a situation where each political party truly believes at some level that the other one is gaslighting them in terms of how we run elections, how we allot political power, how the U.S. Senate is supposed to function, you know, things like the filibuster. We've gotten to the point where we're six months past an armed attack on the US Capitol where the lives of you and your staff and your colleagues were in real danger. And we can't agree on the simple idea of maybe we should take a look at what happened there to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I, how bad is it really for, from the inside? Because you are on the inside of all of this. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix. Um, the fact that a lot is being agreed to in the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a good sign. Um, in areas where there's not lots of room for partisan quarreling, it just hasn't kind of infiltrated there yet. Um, I've gotten a lot of work done with Republican colleagues on ocean plastic cleanup legislation that had to pass by unanimous consent. And we're able to not only get our Republican friends to vote for it, but for them to convince all of their potential Republican objectives to stand down and let the bill pass unanimously. So there's that that goes on on a fairly constant basis, but then you get to these big issues that the parties are using to define themselves to the public or where they fear that there'll be a huge blow up politically if they go along with it. And that's where it gets into the um, political warfare. So um, let's just touch touch on the filibuster, which seems to many people to be an anachronism. It seemed it's a rule that could be changed. Um, why in the face of, uh, of the, of the, of this huge important voting rights bill that looks like it's going to be killed by the current filibuster rule. Why aren't, why, why aren't we hearing more at this point about changing it? Why, why are, where are you on the filibuster and what ought to happen? Well, for, um, 
for years, the um, filibuster was used for pretty toxic purposes. It was the weapon of choice of the Jim Crow South against civil rights legislation, for instance. And then it became kind of the standard operating pr procedure for the Senate. And both sides during that period saw victories when they were able to stop legislation that the other majority was going to push through. And so there are Democrats who have lived with important victories from things that we stopped the Republicans from doing because of the filibuster. Two things have changed. One, the presumption behind the filibuster is a presumption of good faith. And I don't think that presumption of good faith is in play any longer. I think you know the presumption right now should be blockade and you don't have to look beyond Mitch McConnell's own statements that 100% of his efforts are gonna be dedicated to stopping the Biden agenda. So he said it in plain view. It's not like you have to suss that out from some uh, you know, clever conclusions that you might draw. So that's changed. Um, and I think that's a you know, notable difference. The other thing that's changed is that we've seen Mitch McConnell take an incredibly strong position and then flip it when it was to his convenience immediately afterwards. We will not, and it is wrong, to confirm Supreme Court judges within several months of an election because that's the people's job to decide and it would be wrong to let the president uh, force us to vote on this nominee. Well, you know, scroll forward to the exact reciprocal situation um, with Judge Amy Coney Barrett and boom, without the least hesitation or blink of shame, they just blew right through everything that they'd said before and stuffed around the court, not months, but weeks before the election. So when you've seen that behavior take place, it's hard not to believe that whatever Mitch McConnell's big talk is about filibuster now, the instant he gets a chance to have his own majority, particularly if it comes with a House majority so you can do stuff with it, um, he'd blow through it himself. And I think that those two realizations have made a big difference in the caucus. The, the question about good faith and the uh, assumption that the Republicans will do this as soon as it matters to them to do it. So we might as well do it when it matters to us. Right before the break, we were talking about the judiciary and the lack of good faith on the part of Republican senators, especially when it's come to the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court, the appellate courts. And Senator, I wanted to ask you, we've seen a, a tremendous, I, I don't want to say takeover, but certainly a record-setting pace under former President Trump of the naming and confirming of appellate judges. This is where at that level of those 13 courts are where 85% of cases are determined. It's a very, very small minority that end up in the Supreme Court, which of course gets all the headlines. And nonetheless, we all know that now there's a six to three majority of justices appointed by Republican presidents, including three by former President Trump. So President Trump had a tremendous impact on the balance in the courts. Are you concerned about the fairness and the functioning of the judicial branch, one third of our constitutional setup of government. And do you think it's time for the US Senate to do something to address the setup of the judiciary? Yes, I think we do. Um, 
I think the President's Commission will be a good launching point. We'll see how energetic they are and how what they view as their own um, brief as to what they're supposed to do. If it is just basically a law school faculty lounge of professorial input, then I think it's probably a wasted effort. But if they dig a bit and look at some real problems, then I think uh, it could be a launch point for a long overdue review. And it's not so much that it was the Trump judges, it's what's behind all that. Um, this is the first time that a private organization was given this much power over who got appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, the private org organization was called the Federalist Society and they basically controlled the turnstile that let nominees onto the court. And while they controlled the turnstile, they also took huge, huge, huge donations from anonymous donors. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect those two and think, hmm, maybe people are buying influence there. And then you go right down the hall from the Federalist Society to the Judicial Crisis Network, literally on the same hallway. And you see another outfit that paid for all the ads for the last three judges and got checks in the amount of $15 million, $17 million to pay for the ad campaigns. Again, from big anonymous donors, maybe even the same one, which would total over 50, 50 million dollars. So there's a big cloud of dark money influence over this whole operation. And it gets worse when you actually show up in court because then all these groups that are called amici curiae or friends of the court come in and file briefs. And a lot of them don't disclose who their donors are. So they've, they're front groups for unknown parties. And in some cases, we've been able to figure out after the fact that they're actually related to a party in the case, which is in theory improper. But the influence of dark money is pervasive now in the selection of judges and funding the campaigns for their confirmations and in the uh, arguments that are presented to the court by these so-called amici. So um, we've got a significant problem we need to get to the bottom of. And the good news is that we've got some Republican support on some of it, and the judiciary itself is taking a look at some of it. Uh, but those are small and tentative looks at a very big problem. And I hope the presidential commission will be bolder and take a much harder look. So I know that uh, your time is with us is almost up. You've got important things to attend to, and uh, we want to let you go. I, uh, one last lightning round question for you, and uh, and then it's off to the floor so you can stand up for democracy. And the question is, what's the number one thing that you wish you could persuade your Republican colleagues on? A serious climate bill. And why, why is that the one? Because the, um, so much of our future depends on getting it right now. You know, you're, you've got a wonderful view behind you of boats. And one thing about boats, you can load them up and you can load them up and you can load them up and the gunnel, the edge of the boat, gets closer and closer to the water, and it's kind of okay. And then you get to the point where you put that one last load on, and the water starts tipping in over the side, and now you've got a whole different situation on your hands. Nothing changed. You've still got a boat. You're still loading it up. But there was this phase shift when the water started to pour in. And I'm afraid that nature is in one of those phase shifts right now. And if we don't get back to the safe level of climate and carbon dioxide and acidification of the oceans that we've enjoyed for probably 20,000 plus years as a human species. And we're taking re reckless, reckless bets with our children's and grandchildren's future. 
Senator, um, I just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, you good to be uh, with you, Paul. You know, it's um, it's it's real. Your work is really important. Uh, you're a standout for me and for lots of Americans. So thanks for doing the hard work for all of us all the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Senator. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, that was a wonderfully nautical uh, metaphor there for Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island to uh, to end on. Uh, it was right on brand for him. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, you you've known him for a long time, um, you know. And and I, how, what what grabbed you out of that discussion? You know, what really grabbed me is I I, I think. Senator Whitehouse, Sheldon, who, who, as you say, has been a really good friend to me. I mean, he was he he campaigned for me. He has supported me through losing campaigns and uh, winning campaigns. But what my 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 fondest recollections are in campaigns where I literally was underwater and he showed up to help out, um, help me out. Um, and uh, I think he. I, I, I think he likes me. It's like a Saturday Night Live line from Al Franken, and he likes me, and and I like him. And and you know, I think um, he's a guy who's been a real a real champion for a lot of important causes. When I was in Congress, um, he was a mentor for me on energy, environment, and climate change. And 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 that's now that's getting to be like fifteen years ago. Um, that's a long, long time. And he has been a really steady warrior on climate change, cleaning our oceans. Um, he really he really gets it. Um, he's been a stalwart on on equity and fairness. Uh, he's a he's a really smart lawyer. He, he really understands um, what's going on. Uh, with uh, the whole picture of judici judicial nominations and the importance of our legal system. And what really strikes me is, is how clearly and plainly he is able to talk about big issues, complex issues, and boil them down with uh, analogies and stories that really help people understand what's at stake his his analogy on climate change to a boat that you load up and load up and load up and well as long as the rails are still above water you know you still got a boat and then that moment that that the the last bucket of water fills the boat up and the rail tips under and the whole the whole boat is gone as an analogy for what's happening for climate change is is really brilliant in its simplicity and the way he paints a picture. And uh, I appreciate um, how passionate he has been on the floor, how outspoken he has been about important issues. And also, I think the other thing that really struck me is that he is somebody who uh, is, I won't say he's patient about the process and patient about getting things done. It's not that he's patient, but he's wise. He's been there long enough to see the longer term picture of how the Senate works, of how our democracy works, of how government works. And that, um, you know, we started off asking him about the, the voting rights bill and the uh, SR1, the For the People Act. And uh, he 
he was clear about why it's going to be stopped in this form at this time. But also, you did not hear from him doom and gloom about uh, what's going to happen next. What you heard was, yes, you know, this may be the the battle of today, but but we're not done. This is an opening salvo. We're going to keep going. Um, and, and to me, that is for somebody who's been there a long time, it's a remarkable and healthy and um, good news for Democrats that Sheldon Whitehouse is on the job. Yeah, three things stood out for me, um, and they overlap significantly with what stood out to you. One of them was, I remember very well during your U.S. Senate campaign. I mean, look, those of us who were associated with that campaign, we knew in the final stages that you were down um, pretty significantly. And Senator Whitehouse knew it too. Nonetheless, he showed up on the final weekend of that campaign and he went around the state. And I mean, around the state, in a car, in the rain. And at a certain point, the campaign ran out of hodes for Senate lapel stickers, you know, something you'd slap on yourself. And there's a U.S. senator who goes to one of the campaign offices, finds a spare Hodes bumper sticker, plasters it across his chest and turns and says, "Okay, where's the next event? Now, look, you know, it's very easy to be there for someone when the chips are up. It's not so easy to be there when the chips are down. And say what you will, I think you can measure a good deal about someone by their loyalty and their character in an instance like this. I was always very impressed by that. So you want to say something. I, I had other things, but as a personal story, that always stood out to me. I'm verklempt. It, you know, I mean, I mean, it really it really touches me. And, and it's, a, you know, it's a moving story. It's, it's not like I had been a contributor or or at that point knew him all that well. I mean, we had we had we had talked, we had met. I mean, but clearly he's a he is a he's a real human, you know, and and one of the things about politics is for a lot of uh, folks, politicians and senators are put on a pedestal and are not seen in terms of their human qualities, but are often seen only in terms of here's how he voted on this issue and here's what he's doing about that or whatever you know issues uh, there may be that are either gotcha issues or issues around politics. But Sheldon Whitehouse is a tremendous human with compassion for people um, and the kind of kindness and generosity he showed to me, you know, just a, a kind of a, a congressman from New Hampshire. It wasn't even like we were in Rhode Island where he has a real interest up there in New Hampshire running a challenging campaign um, is is it's just it says a lot about who he is. So yeah. I have I'm, I'm I'm tremendously fond of him personally. Um, and uh, he's a he's a very funny, very thoughtful guy. Well, and of course, you know, the other things that stood out to me from that conversation, one you, you touched on a little bit, which is, um, you know, he kind of told, and this was his wording, that it's sort of a mixed story on whether things are really, truly bad, disastrously bad in America and in the U.S. Senate right now or not. And he pointed to some really firm, palpable 
progress that he and other Democrats have been able to make with Republicans on meaningful issues. Cleaning up the oceans and getting rid of plastic in the oceans is, as our president would say, a BFD. That really matters. I have young kids. The the health of the oceans really matters to their future. So I certainly, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. I also think that he's not sugarcoating it when it comes to some of the bad news story. And I particularly heard that when it came to the discussion of the judiciary. And as you say, this is an area where uh, Senator Whitehouse has has really taken a leadership role among Senate Democrats. And he's right that it's it's an almost it's worse than you think story, because at a top level of the 870 federal judges who make decisions in the lower courts, Donald Trump appointed about a quarter of them. And those appointments made a big impact. Donald Trump on his own shifted Republican appointed judges from holding 40% of the seats in the federal judiciary to an outright majority of 54%. He also flipped three of the 13 appellate courts to Republican appointed majorities. So that means seven of the 13 courts of appeals are controlled by jurists picked by Republicans. So he did a lot to tilt that balance of power. And I think what Senator Whitehouse was saying is, yeah, but there's a worse piece of news embedded <laughs> within that, which is, I mean, we kind of know there, there have been these comprehensive analyses done of the judges that Donald Trump appointed. And they showed that Trump judges were far more partisan, far more activist, far more socially conservative than those from any other president. And by the way, a surprising number of them were found by the American Bar Association, totally nonpartisan, to be unqualified. That's, Unqu- that's a separate yeah, story. Unqualified. unqualified. Un- but the, in, in addition to being ideological hacks, unqualified. Hacks. But the thing that does stand out to me is what I had not actually heard what Senator Whitehouse was pointing out there, which is you know, I knew about the Federalist Society. I knew about, but I didn't know about how they were tied in literally on the same floor of the same building as the folks who were funneling the money. That is that is very disturbing. You, you really do have a cadre over the last four to five years of judges appointed by Donald Trump who have made a huge difference, who have tilted the majority on the courts that decide 85% of federal cases that's they've tilted the balance of power and who are these people and you know what what's behind them that is disturbing that's that's very disturbing to me well listen i i don't want to end end up on doom and gloom about this but uh, one thing is clear uh, when you read uh, between the lines of the battles that senator sheldon whitehouse was talking to us about is that our democracy has been deeply affected in the past short period of time, both by the Trump presidency and what he's done with the judiciary, what he did with the agencies of government and his appointments, and by his 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 hench people, including Senator Mitch McConnell, for whom power is everything and statesmanship means nothing. Um, and it's clear that at least Senator Whitehouse has gotten the message that principal means nothing to uh, Mitch McConnell, only convenience and opportunity. And um, it's good to have a, uh, a uh, going in with eyes wide open 
to anything having to do with questions like the filibuster and how to deal with Republicans. And I think that Democrats need to, as they say, bring their backbone with them. So let me ask you a challenging question then. It does kind of leave the the open-ended issue of how robust should Democrats be? And there is not uniformity. There is not consensus on this. Uh, Senator Kristen Sinema just penned an op-ed in the Washington Post defending her opposition. I'm using a lot of negatives here. She wants to keep the filibuster, to keep it as, as clean and simple as Senator Whitehouse did. She wants to keep the filibuster. Her argument is basically, look, if the way we pass legislation in this country is to just white knuckle it and and while you've got power get in there while the getting's good you know and and grab everything you can and just ride it out as long as you can and then when it flips it'll go the other way and she's like look that's that's not that's not good for america that's not going to lead to good results for people you have to stick with whatever mechanisms you have that restrain things so as painful as it is with the For the People Act, maybe it's not such a bad thing that there's some restraint imposed here. Then, of course, there's the counter argument, which is, well, wait a second. The Republicans are the foxes guarding the hen house at the state level when it comes to the rules for how we do elections. And so they write rules that give them an advantage. They elect more Republicans. And then they say, hey, if you don't like the rules, just win the elections that we wrote the rules for. And I agree, there's something a little fishy sounding about that. Where do you come down on that? Well, uh, look, I think uh, Senator Whitehouse is to some degree an institutionalist. He made that clear. He is in, he sees the long game. And he knows that colleagues have been on both sides of the issue around reforming the filibuster. Uh, I think he's been persuaded by the lack of good faith uh, that he's seen in his Republican colleagues who are no longer acting as states statesmen. And he's also seen uh, the lack of principle. So uh, the two combined lack of principle, lack of good faith, um, leave you with a situation in which our democracy is imperiled. So where I come down is, yes, the future may require a different rule, but at this point, reform of the filibuster is what's required. And, 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 and it can be done in a way with an eye towards the future, with an eye towards being even handed. But reform, I think, is called for. Look, that makes sense to me. And one thing I would just remind people of, I did a show on the Great Ideas podcast a couple of months ago with Norm Ornstein, who is the preeminent congressional scholar in America. I, I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say. And he pointed out, look, reforming the filibuster doesn't mean getting rid of the filibuster. There's no, it's not like Moses came down from the mountain with a tablet saying the filibuster has to be 60 votes. You have to hit 60 votes. Actually, it didn't always used to be 60 votes. It used to be two thirds. Then it was lowered to 60. It's actually changed in, in fairly recent times. So it could be 55 votes. It could be whatever the majority is plus two. Um, you know, it could, you could go back to a talking filibuster like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which some senators have supported. So I, I think that's where I come down. It's a little mealy mouth, but I, I, I think some change, but maybe 
maybe small moves, small steps. All right, look, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, I'll rock, paper, scissors you. Who's taking us out? Well, I, I mean, I'm happy to take us out. The, you, you take know, us out. Yeah, this is beyond politics. And Robeson, uh, Robeson, you're a really smart guy. I'm, you know, you, you're, 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 uh, you're a linear thinker, but you're a comprehensive thinker. And um, I appreciate uh, that you and I get a chance to talk from time to time about important stuff. And Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the important people in Congress, um, and he's doing really good work. So for those of you who are listening, thanks for listening. Check our podcast and we'll see you next week.